As we are moving through the books of the Bible, uh, today we have made it to a book that's a little bit shorter, and I am so glad we've made it to the Minor Prophets. Uh, These long books are behind us, and and even though there's 12 chapters in Hosea, next week we've got three chapters. But but even with this shorter book of Hosea, um, we're going to have the opportunity to look at some of the things the prophets are doing. Um, But what happens in Hosea is fairly unique. Um, it's very similar to the rest of the prophets in that the message is still the same. God is faithful and we are not. (laughs) That's the overarching narrative of scripture. From the very beginning in the garden, um, we were unfaithful. Uh, The consequences of that is alienation from God. But God has been pursuing us constantly throughout that. In the Old Testament, pursuing a plan with his people, the Jews, to provide a way through one person, eventually Jesus Christ, who would restore us and reconcile us back to God. That's been the overarching nature. We were unfaithful, but God is faithful to pursue us. What we find in Hosea is that portrayed in a very, very clear picture. Um, God asks Hosea to do the unthinkable. Um, the, The book of Hosea is really two parts. The first three chapters is Hosea's story of his marriage and children. Then chapters 4 through 12 are his messages, okay? In the story part, God asks Hosea to marry a harlot, someone who's already unfaithful. (laughs) Then she has three children, and each one of those children um, become an object lesson through their names of what God sees the nation as in how unfaithful they are. Eventually, Gomer, the wife, Um, She leaves Hosea and and pursues her life of harlotry and is eventually enslaved. And God tells Hosea to go and buy her back. And and that message of love, of, of, of Hosea's love, for his unfaithful wife, is the picture of God's love for us. And and while it is easy for us to think, oh yeah, we're like Hosea, we love other people, the point of the book is we're not like Hosea, we're not like God, we're Gomer. We are the unfaithful followers of God who find ourselves chasing after what I'm going to introduce to you as less wild lovers. We chase after other things that we think will satisfy, things that will bring us life and joy and happiness, and they only enslave us. And yet the wonderful message of this book is that God does not give up on us. While we are constantly running away from his love, he is constantly running after to rescue and to redeem us. And in this book, we see, I believe, a God who has an extravagant, excessive, outrageous, redemptive love for us. It is over the top. It's not just, yes, God loves us. God is love. Christ died for us. The picture is so vivid in this book that you can't say it's anything other than extravagant, excessive, outrageous. It's redemptive. And for some people, it might even be offensive. God would actually do that. Look at what they have done. It's look at what we have done and what God has done for us. So this book is a little different than most of the other books in the Old Testament. It has this whole first part that is a a narrative drama that plays itself out to teach us the lesson. And then the latter half is the messages that, that give us all that we are supposed to be learning from all of that. 
And in the middle of it, there's all these metaphors and word plays. I'll be able to talk about this a little bit more with Joel next week and even more with Amos. Um, Bob Chisholm talks about um, how, the, how the prophets are working with their words. He says it this way, A variety of literary and rhetorical devices fill the writings of the Old Testament prophets, lending vividness and emotion to their powerful messages. Through these devices, the prophet often expresses their theological themes. One of the most common techniques they employ was wordplay. You're going to see this in the book of um, Hosea. In the names of the children, there's a play on words. Wordplay can be based on repetitive, various, repeating various meanings expressed by an individual word, one word that may mean a number of different things. For instance, the first child that is born is named Jezreel. Jezreel means scatter, and scatter can be a bad thing or it can be a good thing. Um, it, it can have the meaning of scattering, like dispersing, but it can mean scattering. It may, it's the word for planting. That's a good thing. You're planting, crops are going to grow. Um, these words sometimes have various meanings. Sometimes uh, they have words, the same words sound differently. And then there's, uh, my, my favorite is paronomasia, when the word sounds like something else. That happens in here too as well, because it's actually not the meaning of the word Jezreel. It's that the word, the name Jezreel sounds like the place Jezreel. And that's what's highlighted is the place and what happened at Jezreel in 2 Kings chapter 15 is what's being highlighted here. Um, and so there's lots of word plays that are going to take place in this book. Um, you have to pay attention to it, but the scriptures actually make them clear. Um, Hosea is one of the best. Not all of the prophets do this. Hosea is really good about pointing out what he's doing with his words. Um, another scholar kind of gives you the, the vivid imagery of this book um, when he writes this. The imagery is diverse and emotionally charged. On the one hand, Israel is represented by a battery of unflattering metaphors. The nation is an unfaithful wife, a stubborn heifer, evaporating dew, fleeting mist and smoke, a hot oven, a burnt cake, a silly dove, a foolish farmer, a useless vessel, a stray donkey, a worthless fruit tree, a bad vine, a hapless twig, a disobedient child, and a childless woman. <laughs> You only got 12 chapters and all these get worked in there of, of what uh, the nation is like from God's perspective. But not all, the, all is negative or hopeless, however. Someday Israel will be, will be wooed by the Lord and their marital bonds renewed. Then the nation will be a beautiful flower and like a firmly rooted bountiful tree. When God comes and does his wooing, his gracious pursuit... Everything turns around. It's not because they get things straightened out. It's because God brings them back. He goes on to say this. Yahweh, too, is characterized in assorted metaphors, each of which reveals a different facet of the profound mystery of his person and character. Now, some reference judgment. He's a moth that will ruin the nation. He's a wild animal that devours. That one is shocking, by the way. A fowler who traps birds and a farmer who yokes Israel, his ox. Yet Yahweh is not solely a stern judge. And this is what is so unique about Hosea. He is a forgiving and romantic husband, a loving parent, a healing physician, a fresh dew, and the source of all blessing. This book is full of all these metaphors that draw us in to see this and to read this at not just a stark a propositional level, but to engage our minds and to engage our hearts 
to read it in a, in a different way. I've got two, just two resources in addition to the chart out there. Uh, one of them gives you the historical background of Hosea. We know very little about Hosea the man you're going to see, but he does tell us a lot about um, the kings and when he is prophesying, and this puts it all together. And then I've got another one that's really an interesting thing that I came across that is um, a number of I wills that God says he will do in Hosea. It's these, these things, God, you, we can count on his faithfulness. As we get to Hosea, I want to kind of set it up for you where we are. Uh, We started off with what are called pre-exilic prophets, and we started with Isaiah, who is a pre-exilic prophet to the southern kingdom. If you'll remember, Saul, David, and Solomon uh, ruled over a kingdom that was united. But Solomon left his kingdom divided between a northern kingdom that was called Israel and a southern kingdom, Judah. About 50 years after the northern kingdom broke away, they moved the capitals to Samaria. And so sometimes the northern kingdom is called Samaria. Sometimes it is called um, Ephraim because that's the main tribe up there. And sometimes it's called Gilead because it's a a fertile area in the front. So in in that area. So in the north, you you have Israel, which is also Samaria, which is also Ephraim, uh, which is also Gilead. That's all northern nation. No good kings up there because they don't have the temple in Jerusalem for them. No good kings. 19 kings, none of them good. Um, We're going to see in just a moment. Hosea is ministering there. Isaiah, though, is ministering in the south in Judah, capital Jerusalem. um, And and that is where he is. It's where Jeremiah ministered. Um, Jeremiah was telling about the judgment that was going to come. And then the judgment comes and he laments it. They are taken away into captivity. And then we dealt with two post-exilic prophets, Ezekiel and Daniel. Now we are making a move back. Okay. We're going over here to catch Hosea, who is a pre-exilic prophet again, but he is ministering in the North. And an interesting thing happens. He, he preaches in the North, but his message is for the North because he's obviously preaching to them, but it's preserved for the South And it's a message for us as well, because we, like I've said, we are not like Hosea, the faithful prophet of God. We are like Gomer, and we follow less wild lovers, but God pursues us to redeem us. The whole book, uh, summarized by Bruce Wilkinson, sounds like this. Hosea is called by God to prophesy during Israel's last hours. Just as Jeremiah would be called years later to prophesy to the crumbling kingdom of Judah, Hosea's personal tragedy becomes an intense illustration of Israel's, Israel's national tragedy. It is a story of one-sided love and of faithfulness between a prophet and his faithless wife, Hosea Gomer, and Yahweh and his faithless people. Um, just as Gomer is married to Hosea, Israel is betrothed to God. In both cases, the bride plays the harlot and runs after other lovers. But unconditional love keeps seeking even when it is spurned. In Hosea's case, this means buying back his wife from the slave market. For Israel, it means purifying punishment followed by restoration to the land of promise. And for us, what it means is discipline from God but never giving up on us, always wanting to bring us back into a beautiful relationship with him. So let's put some details together of the specifics of this book. And through it all, remembering there's all kinds of imagery and story and drama that we're supposed to be drawn into. So first of all, who composed Hosea? The Bible provides very little information about Hosea. He's the son of Berai, 
And we know nothing about him, and we know nothing else about Hosea. We don't know what town he's from. We don't know anything. He's likely from a family of faith, since his name means Yahweh saves. He ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel, often referred to as Samaria, Ephraim, or Gilead. We don't even know what town he was from. We do know that he married a woman named Gober and had three children, which is central to the story of the book. So all you need to know, not where he's from, brothers, sisters, occupation, nothing. Here's what you know, need to know. He was called by God to be a prophet and for his life to be an illustration of the story of the book. Who's the audience of Hosea? Hosea, like Elijah and Elisha and Amos, who were prophets in the northern kingdom, they addressed the northern kingdom of Israel in their preaching. However, it seems unusual that Hosea would mention four Judean kings and one Israelite king in the, in the, in the introduction. In the first verse, what it says is, here are these four southern kings, and here's one northern king, but he's preaching in the north. Obviously, that means there's something for the south to learn from what's happening here. This may mean that his preaching was carried out in Israel, but preserved for Judah. While Hosea and Amos minister in the north, Isaiah and Micah minister primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually, I'm going to put all of these guys together so you'll kind of see um, who's in the south and who's in the north and how they overlap. Suffice it to say here, Hosea is ministering in the north that never had a revival. No one ever paid attention to them. Elijah, Elisha, all of those guys, Amos, a lot of the harsh prophets are prophesying in the north. When was it written? Well, we we have a lot of dates to work with here because Hosea mentions all of these kings. Hosea's ministry spanned the reigns of four Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and one Israelite king, Jeremiah II, Jeroboam II. The total span would reach from 792 to 686, spanning a period of 107 years. All the kings he mentions is 107 years. Hosea's ministry probably began near the end of Jeroboam II's reign, that's crucial to understand, and you'll see why in just a minute, and um, Uzziah's reign, and ended early in the years of Hezekiah's reign. His ministry perhaps lasted 45 years. It also means that Hosea may have seen the fall of the northern kingdom since Hezekiah began ruling in 715. If, If he ruled until Hezekiah came into power, what that means is he was ruling in 722 because Hezekiah came to power in 715 BC. He saw the judgments that he he's talking about, the judgments that Amos talks about, he probably saw them take place. That's why it's likely he saw them and he's preserving this message actually for the southern kingdom. I mentioned um, that he lives during the, uh, the end of Jeroboam II's reign. Um, let me give you a little bit of background on what that means. Um, Merrill Unger says this, Hosea began his ministry toward the latter part of the prosperous and morally declining era of Jeroboam II of Israel. I don't know if you need anything to make this book any more relevant than the fact that we are unfaithful, God is not. And he was living in a time that was prosperous. And I know you may be struggling to pay for gas, but all of you have gas in your cars or you wouldn't be here today. Um, we, we live in a prosperous time, but morally declining This is the time that he is preaching during. Um, uh, This all contributed, uh, continued on after the fall of Samaria into the troubled reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. His ministry followed closely that of Amos. The latter thundered forth his scathing prophecies while Hosea spoke with the heart passion of a native son. In two weeks when we get to Amos, you're going to see the harshness of Amos. That's not Hosea. Hosea's got a tender heart. 
Jonah was the northern kingdom's foreign missionary. He went to Nineveh. While Hosea was its home missionary, he's preaching back home. With the brokenness and passion of Jeremiah, Hosea had a sensitivity of heart that made him the apostle of love in the Old Testament. Although the theme of judgment for apostasy runs through the book, it is interwoven by the golden strand of mercy and love. And Hosea's exposure of sin and impending judgment is not the fiery denunciation of Amos, but a mournful, solemn elegy that breathes the depth, the deep love of the Lord for his sinning people. This is a book about sin. It's a book about discipline. But more than anything, it's a book about God's love for his people. So why was Hosea written? Hosea is written to provide us with a very graphic portrayal of the sins of the northern kingdom with the Lord's reaction to that, pushing them away, and the equally graphic and lavish loyal love of God for his wayward people. So what we've got here, okay? Um, how does this develop, and, and what are some of the specifics? I want to get to that. Um, how, how this develops, like I've said, there's a prologue, just one verse that says, here's Hosea, he reigned during this time, and he is the son of this guy. Then we get three chapters that is his marriage. Um, he goes out and he, Hosea marries Gomer. They have three children. Um, their names become very instructive. And then after that, in chapter 4, we start to get a bunch of messages that Hosea preached throughout his life. There's no chronology. There's no time stamps on him that was this happened. We just know sometime generally during this period is when Hosea lived and he preached all of these messages. On the chart out there, what I'm trying to capture is, is this flow and the fact that there's both judgment and there's salvation promised. Um, Hosea's marriage is these first th- three chapters. And then his messages is the second three. God communicates the same message through a drama at the very beginning. And the drama portrays our unfaithfulness and God's limitless, extravagant, uh, his, his endless love for his people. And then what uh, Hosea is going to do is he's going to deliver these messages that have sequencing of charges against Israel, but calls for them to repent. And then times when Hosea looks at that and says, and God is going to bring you back. And and some of those things happen in the Old Testament. Some of the times when God fulfills all of these things actually are even in our future. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. So what's the message? How can I try to put this together in one cumbersome sentence? During a time of political upheaval and national decline in the northern kingdom of Israel, that's Ephraim, Hosea, using the figure of an unfaithful wife, illustrated through his marriage and children that the nation had been unfaithful to the covenant, even though God had been faithful to them, and therefore predicted that they would be judged in order to call call the nation, including Judah, so he's prophesying in the north, but he's calling the southern nation too, to turn back to God, which would result in restoration and blessing under the covenant which the Lord has promised." God doesn't give up on us. God is going to fulfill. God's going to complete this grand narrative that he started in the beginning to rescue us. He's going to fulfill it. But for us to participate in it, we have to be responsive to him. Now, what the new covenant does that we'll see in Joel again is God makes that internal. God's going to make our hearts turn towards him. So how does this all play out? Again, Dan Carroll says this. These metaphors and similes are designed to strike the hearts and imaginations of God's people. Some shock by exposing the ugliness and depth of sin and straightforwardly compelling repentance. Others comfort and encourage the faithful to trust in the goodness of God and persevere through the coming judgment. 
It is important to emphasize that the overriding picture of Yahweh and his people point to restoration. Yes, there's sin, there's judgment, but the overall picture is restoration and love. The book's final word is not one of an angry deity committed to destroying a sinful nation. Above all, Yahweh is a caring spouse, a patient parent, a beneficent doctor, and rejoices in the renewal of his people. This is the book of Hosea. It's, it's passionate. It's vivid. It's alive. It's a story. Um, it's designed to capture our hearts. And it's illustrated in life. Here's how it starts after we are introduced to who Hosea is. Hosea 1-2, second verse, begins this way. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Wow, what an assignment. (laughs) What an assignment from the Lord. Deliver a harsh message? Deliver a message of grace? Okay, you want me to live this out? And Hosea does it. And here's what happens. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while. And I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. This is second Kings 15. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel on that day. I will break and bow, break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Um, and God's judging right now by sending darkness into this room. Um, the name Jezreel would have for them brought back the, the, the narrative of what happened in the valley of Jezreel up in the north, and it's when there was a dynasty change. Um, Ahaz's dynasty gets rid of Jehu's dynasty by attacking the king in the valley of Jezreel. And it just goes from one bad thing to another bad thing, but it's a change of dynasty. And I think what they would have heard is, oh my gosh, there's a dynasty that's changing and it's going to be worse. And what God's going to say is, yes, it's going to be worse because I'm going to wipe out this dynasty by putting an end to it. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhama. What a horrible name for a daughter. Lo-Ruhama. Rahum is the name, is the word for a womb. No compassionate womb-like care. God doesn't have that anymore for them. For I will no longer have compassion. I will no longer have ruhama on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah. You haven't stepped over the line, Judah. Israel in the north, they have. And I will deliver them by the Lord, their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle horses, or horsemen. God's going to deliver, but not by the means of the world. But Israel has stepped over a line. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami. You'll notice this Lo word means not. Am is uh, people. Me is my. Not my people. You're no longer my people. For you are not my people, and I'm not your God anymore. You've not wanted me to be your God. You have followed less wild lovers. You can have them. There's a message of this following less wild lovers. I'm stealing this from uh, a book called The Sacred Romance. Um, For she said, I will go after my lovers 
who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. I'm going to go and find my satisfaction there. I'm going to get all my needs met there, not with the Lord. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but will not find them. You think you're going to get all that stuff, but you're going to get nothing from them. Another verse says this, they will eat, but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution, but not flourish because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Old wine and new wine taken together, uh, take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. You're pursuing these other, um, these other gods, these other things that you think are going to give you bread and water and satisfaction. And, and and you think it's an idol that will produce something for you, you're freaking talking to a stick of wood, is what he's saying. Um, This term, less wild lovers, comes from um, Brent Curtis and John Eldridge's book, The Sacred Romance. I would highly recommend this. It's it's a book um, that's that's very old. Before John became famous, um, he and Brent... um, Short story, I, I, I was on the top of Mount Evans, which is a 15,000-foot mountain in Colorado, um, and Brent was leading some of our friends in renewing their marriage vows. You, we're at 15,000 feet because it's the only place you can drive there, and little by little, everybody just walked to the side and started throwing up because they'd been at 15,000 feet for too long, and Brent just kept on talking, kept on talking, people getting in their cars, driving down. Um, but it's a good book. Read the book. In the book, there's a whole chapter called Less Wild Lovers. All the lovers that we pursue, that we think are going to provide life and and enjoyment, that won't provide what God is going to provide for us. They're empty, they're hollow. And all all of these lovers that we provide that, that you can crank up, that you can put in a bag, that you can buy at Belk, all of those things that we think are going to satisfy us, they will leave you empty. And like Gomer, eventually, absolutely enslaved. Um, There's a harsh message here. Listen to the words of Yahweh, O sons of Israel, for Yahweh has a contention against the inhabitants of the land. Three charges, because there is no truth or loving kindness or knowledge of God in the land. These things are very clear. There is no knowledge of God. They are not in the word of God. They're not being taught well. Their leaders are hugely condemned. They are not in the truth. And they don't live that truth out. The word there is emet. It means faithfulness. It's how you live your life, faithfully consistent with the word of God. And there is no loving kindness. That's our word that we learned back in, in um, Ruth. It's chesed. You don't know God. You're not living any of this truth out. And you're not being kind to anybody else. It's all about you. Your pursuit of less wild lovers has left you empty and selfish and all alone. And the leaders are the ones who are failing in all this. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. There's no prophet helping you out of this. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as my priest because you have ignored the law of your God. I will also ignore your children. The more priests there were, the more they sinned against me. (laughs) The leaders were leading them away. God, God, help this church. God, help the church. God, help me if there's ever a sense in which we are falling away from the knowledge of God and living that out in our lives and expressing it in chesed love to other people. It becomes harder and harder and harder in the world in which we live. I'm going to skip this quote. 
But there is a message here, a message of, of tender care. This verse is highlighted, circled in my Bible. It is one of my favorite books, verses, not only in, in Hosea. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God will allure us. It's interesting, this word for allure, is, it's the word that in the book of Proverbs is related to the simpleton, someone who's easily persuaded and gullible. We're so gullible, but God will take advantage of our gullibility, and he'll allure us into a desert place. Who would follow him there? He's got to get us into these desert, difficult places. But that's when he speaks tenderly to us. That's when he meets us and talks literally to her heart. Um. As I think about this part of the message and how um, tenderly God speaks, I, I think it'd be helpful for you to hear this um, from the voice of a woman. So I'm going to ask Heather Harrison to come up here and join me on the stage. Heather, you're going to be looking for the mic. It's right there. Um, earlier this week, Heather just texted me simply, and she just said, Hosea, I love that book. We started interacting back and forth, and a lot of the thoughts that she had, I thought, boy, this, is, this would really be helpful for you to hear um, her thoughts on, the, hey, your list is longer than first hour. No, <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I really would, would love for you to hear just how, how yeah. you respond to this. God speaks tenderly. Tell, tell, yeah. Talk about the tenderness of this book. Yeah. Yeah, I think when we read Scripture, you know, the question we want to keep in mind is what does it teach us about the heart of God? And what Hosea teaches us about the heart of God is that he's holy and that he does judge sin and that even his consequences and his judgments are to lead us back to him. Even his consequences and judgment are a grace to call us back to him. Um, you know, this story, I remember the first time I heard it, and it's shocking, right? Like, go marry an adulterous wife? It's shocking. And it should be shocking. And we should be able to grasp the grim, heavy nature of sin that it shows us so that we can then grasp the um, glorious grace of God. If we haven't settled with the weight of sin, then I don't think we understand the grace of God. And it's through that understanding that we can see what his heart is, and his heart is to always lead his people back to him, whether it's through consequences or not. Um, It's interesting to me that, you know, in the Old Testament, God's people are idolatrous. They worship other gods, false gods, in Hosea, they are adulterous. It's not just worshiping something else. It's actually giving themselves away. They were created to know God. They were created to know him closely. And instead, they gave themselves away. And then God tells Gomer, um, Hosea, go buy her back. And she does. <laughs> he does buy her back. And that should ring a bell to us. He buys her out of the very thing she so willingly ran into. (laughs) That should be shocking to us. Um, We see that in Christ, right? That he buys us out of the slavery we've gotten ourselves into. 
I think sometimes when we step into sin, we think it's out of freedom. We are free to rebel. We can do what we want. And quickly, that road leads to a road we never planned on. And we are stuck. (laughs) And when we're stuck, we need someone else to come in and rescue us out of it, which is what Hosea does. It's what Christ does. And I'll end with this verse. It's my favorite one in the book. It's 14.4. And he says, I will heal their waywardness, and I will love them freely. You know, he could have just said, I will forgive them, which would have been enough, right? If he forgives us, that's plenty. But now he's saying, I will heal their waywardness. In other words, I will address their sin from the inside out, which is the promise of the new covenant through Christ. I will heal and remove their inclination and tendency to always go astray. And that's only possible through the cross of Christ, (laughs) through his Holy Spirit in us, to now cause our hearts to want to follow him, which is, the I would say, one of the best promises in Scripture, that he will heal that inclination inside of us. So I'll leave you with that. Thanks, Heather. I thought it was very important for you to hear a tender voice deliver that. Um, Because God's tender heart is here. Um, You've heard a heart. Let me me give some bones to some of this. This is a message of costly love. Heather has alluded to all of these things. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You are not to be a prostitute or to be intimate with any other man. I will behave the same towards you. God has always been faithful to us. He will be faithful to us. He's asking us, will you now be faithful to me? And this message does turn everything around. It's this message of reversal. Listen to how it all turns. It will come about in that day. I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. There's going to be rain and the earth will respond with grain. There's going to be fruitfulness. There'll be new wine and oil. They will respond to Jezreel. I will, Jezreel will be changed from a battle place to a fertile place. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Everything is reversed. Jezreel is no longer judgment. It's now fertility. It goes from you're not, you have no compassion to you have compassion. You're not my people to you are my people. And the core of that is, and he's our God because he's rescued us back. And it's a message of internal change. Do you remember the three accusations? Look how they are reversed. For I delight in loving kindness, chesed, rather than the sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. It's not the external stuff of sacrifices and burnt offerings. It's the internal change. Is your heart different? Do you know who God is? Do you know his grace? Do you know his love? Do you know his compassion? And does that have an impact on how you live and you love other people? Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there's no Savior besides me. There's no lover better than him. There's no freedom in anywhere else. There's no flourishing anywhere else. 
And it's a message of grace. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, that verse that Heather loves so much. So what do you do with this? Well, the book ends with a warning. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. The transgressors will stumble in them. Listen, pay attention to this. Don't let this trip you up. Um, the, the book fits in this way. Hosea is this dramatic lesson about God's love and faithfulness in light of the unfaithfulness of his people. That shouldn't be new to us at all. Hosea preached in the northern kingdom, but his message resonates with the southern kingdom and with us today. This is not just a history lesson. This is a, a lesson that he preached, and the people who he preached to absolutely did not pay attention to him. The southern kingdom paid attention for a while, and then they were disciplined as well. And Hosea highlights a lack of knowledge, love, and faithfulness among the people of God. They didn't know who God was, so they found less wild lovers. What should we believe? The Lord will discipline his people, but he never gives up on them. The Lord will fulfill his covenant promises both to bless and to discipline. And our participation in covenant blessings requires obedience. God will accomplish it. He's going to make it happen. Whether you're a part of that or not depends on whether you respond to him and to his invitation. So how should we behave? Convicted over our sin of unfaithfulness and falling in love with a God who who loves us so deeply. Convinced that God's love is never-ending. And carefully listening to hear that tender voice of God. If you're in the wilderness because of your sin, if he has allured you into the wilderness, listen for his tender voice there. Listen. You may have walked there on your own accord, but he wants to speak tenderly to you there. 